Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tell Me This. I'm Brianne Roos here with Carrie Borkowski, and we are thrilled and honored to have a very special guest here with us today, Dr. Vanessa May. Uh, we've been reading your work for a while, and it's really exciting to have you here. We're just really looking forward to the conversation about belonging from your perspective. So let me give a brief bio. Professor Vanessa May earned her PhD from Abu Academy in University in Finland in 2001. Between 2002 and 2005, she worked at the Center for Research on Families, Kinship, and Childhood at the University of Leeds before joining the Department of Sociology at the University of Manchester in 2005. She was co-director of the Morgan Center for the Research into Everyday Lives from 2018 to 2022, and she is currently the head of sociology. She is also a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. Vanessa's previous research has focused on post-divorce parenting, lone motherhood, and intergenerational relationships. Methodologically, her interests span the use of mixed methods, qualitative interviewing, narrative analysis, and biographical methods. Her current work concerns the self, belonging, and temporality, with a focus on aging and migration. So now you can see why we're very excited about this conversation, because <laughs> your work aligns so nicely with what with what we do and, and like to think about. Um, so welcome. Welcome. Thanks Thank for coming you. on. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Before we get started, if you wanted to just share um, your name and, and pronouns with our guests, that would be great. Yeah, so I'm Vanessa, and my pronouns are she, her. Great, thank you. And we always like to start with just a check-in, just a, a question about how you're doing, how's your family, your work, your loved ones. Yeah, I think we're right. We're a bit wet here in Manchester. It's a really <laughs> wet, cold December day. Oh, so geez. I plan not to leave the house. My partner's <laughs> just just gone out to the supermarket to get some food because our fridge is empty. Okay. But yeah, so other than that, we are all right, including yeah. our aging cat who's probably asleep, curled up asleep on some bed somewhere Aww. in the house. <laughs> it's great that you uh, convinced your partner to go out and get the food so you could stay yeah. warm and drive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I said, hi, very important business I've been yeah. interviewed for a podcast I couldn't go. possibly go <laughs> yeah exactly good well we thought it would be most appropriate to start as we do with our guests just trying to understand your definition of belonging so you've written so extensively about it and we know you come at this from a sociological lens and perspective and that's really interesting to us so for our guests would you mind sharing how you define belonging yeah, so for me, belonging is essentially it's a feeling, a sense of feeling at home, both within oneself and also with the surrounding world. And as we'll probably go on to discuss today, for me, the surrounding world is is a sort of a complex world of people, places, cultures, material objects, uh, time, Um so I'm really interested in in so in my sociological work, I've been interested in looking at belonging through through this multifaceted lens of of you know that belonging can be many things, and we can feel a sense of belonging on one aspect, so we can feel a sense of belonging to place, but not to people, or vice versa. Um, and also that, that there's a there's a sort of a branch of sociology that are very interested in the kind of people's experience of the world 
um, and it's sort of aligned with phenomenological philosophy. And one of the issues there is looking at sort of um, people's sense of familiarity with the world. So for belonging, familiarity can be very important because often we feel at home with things, people, places, cultures that we're familiar with, although that's not always the case. Um, so belonging is also often something that's built up over time. So we can have an immediate sense of belonging to a place or a person, but but often belonging is something that we we tend to feel to places or people who we've known for a long, long, long time. Um, so, for example, if we look at belonging to family, part of our sense of belonging to family, even though they can drive us bonkers at times, <laughs> is that sense of knowing exactly who they are, how they'll behave. And having that sort of uh, interaction that is familiar to everyone. Um, and then also people, often people can feel a sense of belonging to a place where they've lived for a long time, although that, again, is not always the case. Mm. Um, and if we think of belonging to culture, so culture, again, is a sociological term for like the the traditions and ways of thinking and ways of speaking that, that a culture shares. Mm. Um so belonging to culture is also based on the fact that we we grow up in a culture or a collection of cultures. So I'll be talking maybe about my own background, which is sort of a multicultural background. But we, as we grow up in a culture, we become accustomed to the ways of doing and thinking and speaking and and so on. So th those are also form a, form a basis for our sense of belonging. Uh, so eating particular types of food, wearing particular types of clothing, speaking in a certain way, for example, accents. Um, and then these practices, these kind of cultural practices, as we sociologists like to call them, they become so familiar to us that we don't even have to think about them. Mm. It's just the way the world is. It's just the way we are. And again, we is a sort of an amorphous collection of people who belong to that culture. Um and then so as a sociologist, the thing that, that that immediately when you're a sociologist, you start thinking not just of the individual and their sense of belonging, but also for sociologists, we're interested in people from the perspective of the people are inherently social. We are social beings. We grow up in groups. We uh, we gain our sense of self in relationships with other people and in relation to other people. So we learn to distinguish ourselves as similar or different to certain types of people um so for for a sociologist belonging speaks to this social aspect of people um so psychologists for example might say that people have an innate drive to belong mm -hmm. and then sociologists are interested in studying well what does that how does how does that happen um so if we think of belonging, it might feel like it's just an individual feeling, as in I belong here. Mm. But then when a sociologist starts to look at belonging, we start to notice that actually that sense of belonging often requires that other people respond to it, that they acknowledge it, that they recognize you as belonging to a particular place or a particular culture or a particular group. So um we then immediately arrive at the fact that belonging isn't just an individual feeling, it's also social and political, very importantly. Um, so belonging, because we often when people hear the word belonging, we think it's nice fluffy things of, oh, it's so nice to belong. But actually there's a, there's a neg negative side to belonging as well, because 
the the moment people start forming groups that includes certain people and excludes other people so belonging is also about drawing those boundaries of who does and does not belong very important so this is what um, social scientists will call the politics of belonging so belonging is often contested so the right to belong is given to certain people but not others and if we look at this, this at the social level we can see that there are many marginalized groups, uh, for example, people from racialized minority backgrounds, LGBT plus people, uh, migrants, um, a variety of groups in society. But in, in Britain, social class, for example, is an important divider in terms of who can and cannot belong where in a specific place. Um, so we can see that that certain marginalized groups have or have been denied a sense of belonging at this kind of more social aggregate aggregate social uh, level, um, and that's sort of that that's also a good good sort of example of how a sociologist thinks moving from the individual yeah. very quickly through to the political and the social. That was great. I I so appreciated that sort of journey. From there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had two follow up questions, if, if you wouldn't mind, yeah. Vanessa. One, I, I heard you say, um, and I don't know, Brian, that we've talked about it in this way. I heard you say belonging is something that can be built up over time. Mm -hmm. um, often I've heard trust described that way, right? That it sort of takes time and you collect pieces of trust that create this trustworthiness. So I'm, can you talk a little bit about more about that? I'm so interested about sort of the idea of belongingness being built up over time. Is it similar to trust that it just takes long to feel that sense or, or what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, that that's actually an interesting question because that also made me think about, well, what, what is the relationship between belonging and trust? Yeah. Um, and I think there's a, there's a sort of a, a triangle there with belonging, trust, and familiarity. Mm. So maybe we tend to trust. We we may be so the kind of the classic sociologist Bourdieu would perhaps say that we trust people who we feel familiar with, who we think think the same way as we do, and mm -hmm. we think we can anticipate what they're going to say or do. We can anticipate their behaviour, anticipate their reaction to us. Um, so I th I think I think there is a relationship between belonging and trust, but but I think it's more about that. that for me, the it I, I come at it more from that angle of familiarity. Mm -hmm. That the the things and the people and the places that we know very well mm -hmm. are the ones that we might feel a strong sense of belonging to. Yeah that is then then it requires that time or or there are also people who study belonging to place and and often mm -hmm. that is to do with not only your bio biography but your ancestors so there are lots of places in the world where you can't really claim a sense of belonging if you're not born and bred mm -hmm. so someone just recently asked me I've lived in Manchester now for almost 20 years and someone asked me do you consider yourself a Mancunian and I just went, no, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I wouldn't dare claim to be yeah. Mancunian, even though I love the city. Yeah. But I, I can't claim belonging. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you know, I, I can claim to belong, but I can't claim to be Mancunian. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a slight difference there. So my sense of belonging here is very much to do with my own familiarity and love of the place. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't be reciprocated by born and bred Mancunians as you belong here. Mm. I'm allowed to live here. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't from their perspective, I probably don't belong as a Mancunian. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that trust we'll have to maybe offline. That's a the trust and belonging. They're very intertwined and even familiarity, right? Because you could yeah. make the case that because so, you were very careful to say, you know, family's familiar and a sense of belonging. Well, some not all the time, right? And so yeah. it's familiar until perhaps that trust is broken, right? And then it creates yeah. problems with that familiarity. Yeah. So it's a it's a complex. So yeah, we we can think of like marginalized, stigmatized excluded groups mm-hmm. um who even though they might have lived somewhere all their lives are denied that belonging by other people because of for example their skin color their social class their sexual identity yeah um so there there would be then also that lack of probably a mutual lack of trust mm. which then denies on some level probably denies a sense of belonging yeah. or makes it more difficult to achieve. For sure. Yeah. So much to unpack. This is what I happens, know. Vanessa, on our <laughs> yeah. podcast. A podcast that is supposed to be talking, we often pause to reflect. So we always warn our listeners. <laughs> and I know something we're going to pull on a little bit more, because I think this is really what brought me to your work is, and we moved, we moved over it pretty quickly, is you mentioned initially that belonging is a feeling at home within self. Mm-hmm. And I know that's still individual. And I think it has it has ramifications for how you view the social belonging and the film. So I'd love to, you know, pull that open and unpack that a little bit more with you, this whole notion of belonging to self. Cause in our in our most recent um analysis and research that's what's been coming up a lot for people is the importance of belonging to self sometimes first before you can belong in other spaces with others so um yeah i would love to love to hear more about that and i think particularly in in contemporary at least western cultures if we can call them that because we are so the culture is so infused with this kind of therapy language Mm. Um, so there is that notion that if you if you're not happy within yourself, you can't be happy in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that those two are then also intertwined. That that uh, if I think back to my own experiences, whenever I've felt a sense of not belonging, that has then impacted my sense of belonging to self as well. So I think again that they're not yeah. they're 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 very closely intertwined. Yeah, in Absolutely. both ways. Yeah. I wonder, um, in reading your book and your work, if you could just describe or define maybe habitus and hexus a little bit for for guests, sort of Ooh. in that realm. Of, <laughs> of... Yeah, I'm not sure I can I can remember so... exactly what hex is, but but habitus. <laughs> so Bourdieu's Bourdieu's notion of habitus, yeah. um, which which is really important for a sociological analysis of belonging. So Pierre Bourdieu, French um, sociologist, well, we claim him as a sociologist. I think he was a sociologist, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> a theorist, social theorist. Um, I mean, one of his most famous concepts is the concept of habitus. Mm-hmm. 
And um, for Bourdieu, again, habitus was a way of looking at the both the individual and the social. So um, he he sort of famously thought of sort of social structures as 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 something that we create through our actions. We recreate them through our actions and interactions with each other, but they also structure who we are and and, and who we become. And an important dimension of habitus, and why I I like to, why I sort of used habitus as one of the concepts in my book, is because it is, habitus encompasses both sort of conscious verbal discourse and thought, but also embodied practices. And these embodied practices and embodied ways of being in the world are ones that we're not often consciously aware of. So we we do things at an embodied level in a particular way because that's how we've been brought up. So that's part of the culture, mm-hmm. a culture, different cultures. And even within a culture, so it's really important to think of cultures not as these monoliths, but say, even if we think if there if there was such a thing as British culture, which is a very contested notion, but even within British culture, there are different subcultures like, you know, a South Asian, British South Asian person might eat and speak and uh, move about and wear different clothes compared to like a white working class British person. Um, but for me, sort of Bourdieu's work is really important because it, it taps into that idea that what we do in our everyday lives with our bodies and how we inhabit the world that's a very important part of both who we are as people but also how society is structured mm-hmm. so Bourdieu was interested in social class differences in sort of stratification as sociologists mm-hmm. call it um, an important way in which society is stratified is is through these sort of embodied codes of being so in Britain for example accent is really important because the minute someone opens their mouth you can start decoding where are they from what social class background they might have what level of education dress is another thing so dress is class coded Mm -hmm. in a country like Britain it can also be coded in terms of occupation so we just had a conversation in relation to a PhD student's work that, you know, people in the finance sector will dress very differently from an academic. So if I rocked up in my usual daily, what I wear to work at university, you know, people in the finance sector would look at me and go, God, what a bum, you know, <laughs> not, not dressed appropriate at all for the workplace. Yeah. Um, and and also then, you know, one of the things that Bourdieu, for example, was interested in was food, people's food practices, what people eat and what that tells you about how society is, is stratified. Mm-hmm. And again, food is in, hugely important for belonging. And that's food is not only something that we consume every day, then that that is part of our culture and a part of of feeling familiar in the world. And maybe that's part of also feeling at ease with oneself when one gets to eat the foods that one usually eats and likes but food and the consumption of food is also really social practice that we do so think of like um the notion of the family dinner um or then sort of high festivities like Eid or Christmas or Diwali where particular foods are consumed in in a group setting as a way of 
maybe creating a sense of cohesion in the family or in a you know a broader group of people so it's a way of both creating a bringing families together to do something hopefully enjoyable together although again Christmas isn't always enjoyable for everyone <laughs> no, um, but also a way of sort of affirming that sense of cultural belonging mm. it's funny we had a guest was it a year ago now Brianne we had a guest um, a non-native English speaker and she told us one of her stories of belonging when she first arrived in when she was first in the U.S. going to school as a Spanish-speaking young person and she said that she didn't share the language, but what she could share was a treat from her lunchbox that she was able to share with a with a friend to create a sense of belonging. So it's a little different than what you're saying, right? Like the cultural norms. But I do think it's interesting that it, in that example, it was almost like a pathway to belonging, which mm -hmm. right, like to create that social sense of belonging. So I love I love that you talk about food in that way. It's fun. Yeah. So part of what we love to ask um, Vanessa is for some of your belonging story. And Brianna and I knew when we wrote this question that this could be an entire podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, so perhaps a moment. And I would love, because I'm a curious being, we noticed in your book that you dedicated the book to, is it Eva or Eva? Eva, yeah. Eva yeah. May, who gave you said me, my first and safest sense of belonging. Was this your mother, your grandmother, yes. your mother? That was my mother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I just thought that was, I thought that was so beautiful. And we were excited to see that because one of the things that we love about this podcast is I started this podcast to honor my grandmother, who I feel also gave me my first sense of belonging. So I felt sort of a kindred spirit there with you for a moment. So, <laughs> so we would love to hear if you're willing to share. It's always an invitation, never a requirement. Yeah. Um, even just a glimpse into your belonging story. Yeah, well, it'll be more than a glimpse. Okay, that's okay. That's great. Stop me if I go that's on okay. for too long. <laughs> and I think this is sort of intertwined with why, so my own background probably explains why I then eventually ended up being so interested in studying belonging sociologically and it's because I I as I've mentioned I sort of grew up in a multicultural household so and it's quite a complex story so I grew up in Finland in a Finnish speaking town so Finland is is has two official languages Finnish and Swedish but I grew up in a very Finnish speaking area where all the schools were Finnish. Most, you know, there's a tiny minority of people who speak Swedish. So everything happens in Finnish. So I grew up there, but I, my dad is English. So I had an English name. Vanessa May is an English name. It's nowhere near a Finnish name. <laughs> so the moment people saw my name, they went, hang on, where are you from? Mm. Especially I was born in 1970. So 1970s Finland was very very homogeneous you know majority white you know not many people from abroad moving to Finland so it was very unusual to have a non-Finnish name and then to add to that my mother was a Swedish-speaking Finn so oh my, my parents had moved from a from the capital city to this smaller university town um so I grew up in a home where we spoke Swedish and English. Those were the languages at home. Um, and I remember, for example, being really ashamed of my mum who'd sit on the bus and speak Swedish really loudly. And I'd be like, shh, shh, don't, don't, don't draw attention to us. <laughs> um, and 
so I had so I remember my childhood as as really as me really struggling with this sense of belonging because I felt I couldn't claim belonging to either Finland or or England and I couldn't fully claim belonging to my Swedish speaking heritage either so Finns would sort of immediately say but you can't be fully Finnish because you you've got an English name mm-hmm. and then whereas then my my English relatives will, would say, you know, you're not English. And even my my English partner now says you're not English. <laughs> uh, so I, I and that, that's where this sort of the, the importance of recognition comes into it. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what I might have felt, I was constantly coming across people who said, well, you don't fully belong. You're not fully us. And they were more surprised at, oh, you do speak fluent Finnish or, oh, isn't your English really fluent, even though you come from a from a strange country up north? Um, so I sort of I grew up really struggling with this. So this was the, so this was a sort of source of discomfort for me, and probably a source of not really feeling at ease with myself then either. Um, and it was so I I did all my education in Finland, and then uh, in two thousand and one, when I was thirty one, I moved to the UK to, for work. Um, and so by now I had a PhD. I was a sort of fully fledged young sociologist. And um, what I remembered, so I, when I moved to the UK, I thought this will be easy because I'm half English. I, we'd, we'd been there loads. Um, our home was culturally more British than Finnish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought this will be this will be really easy. And and it was a massive culture shock when I moved here. And it was partly to do with the fact that I didn't know how things work in this country. Mm. So again, those things that I had taken for granted in Finland of of knowing how the tax system works, knowing how the healthcare system works, Mm. knowing how public transport works, knowing how to buy a train ticket, what types of train tickets, all that stuff. And also then just the little things um, that I started to notice that, that, uh, I moved to a town, a city called Leeds, which is in sort of northern England in Yorkshire. And Leeds looks very different from the England that I knew down south. So I knew London and Brighton. Mm-hmm. So Leeds looks like a completely different, like the buildings look different, the landscape's very different. So I sort of started noticing that actually those those things are really important for a sense of belonging. So even though I was in England, it felt like I was in a strange country. Mm. The accent is also very different in Yorkshire. I couldn't always understand what people were saying. <laughs> so I kind of felt culturally unmoored. And then I also noticed that there were also the tiny things that that unsettled me. So one example I love to give is traffic signs. So across Europe, probably also in the US, you know, traffic signs more or less look the same, but actually there are tiny differences, like the shade of blue is different, or the you know the 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 human being walking across the zebra crossing, the, the shape of the human being is different in different countries in Europe. Mm-hmm. So those little things were constantly reminding me, you're in a diff, you're not at home, you're not at home, you're not at home. Um, so I was really surprised by the 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 strength of this feeling of not not being at home. Um, and then because by then I was a sociologist, I thought, well, I started to sort of puzzle this through as a sociologist. Well, what, what, how could sociology explain this? And then I came across a, 
paper on belonging or a chapter on belonging in a sort of a textbook on 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 identity and self mm. uh, for sociology students because I was teaching teaching that topic at, uh, at university and I thought oh I've, I've hit on something here now and I thought I was like the first sociologist to think <laughs> of belonging then of course I discovered there's a huge literature on belonging so no I didn't discover belonging um but but then that that notion of belonging actually allowed me to unpack all of this about mm. Mm. it's about it's about culture it's about language it's about place it's about material like the material environment how it looks it's about habits routines so belonging allowed me to sort of sociologically start to look at all of that and the mix of it um yeah isn't it funny I have to say it's so funny Vanessa when sort of the universe brings you just what you need like yeah. that that chapter on belonging probably helped you sort of sort out some of what you were you were feeling yeah. and observing I I yeah. have to ask given the this beautiful description of it feels like you're on a I don't know I was I kept envisioning like one foot in one camp and one foot in the other or yeah. in multiple camps or whatever the metaphor yeah. so how do you know like how do you know when you belong and like what's that source for you given that you're navigating these different places like what's the anchor point for you or points um I think for me, and again here, it's so, for for me, being a sociologist is so now woven into who I am and how I am in the world. Yeah. So I think it's the kind of the the critical studies into the, the political aspect of belonging, mm. um, whereby this notion of belonging is used as a tool for excluding people and so I've I've read research on, for example, people from mixed race backgrounds and how difficult it can be for them to have a feeling of belonging with either their mm. sort of white or black family or their white or black background or culture. And the kind of the critical work on this that actually then starts questioning this this whole need to have one source of belonging. So that was for me like and that for me is why I probably became a sociologist was because sociology it works like a kaleidoscope. So it sort of takes the world as we think that we know it and then just shifts your perspective slightly and says, now, doesn't this look strange, actually, when you start thinking about it? So this whole notion that we have to have one culture that we belong to, which is, again, why people would sort of say to me, but you're not really Finnish or you're not really English, but you have to choose one or the other. That was the other thing people would say. So which are you more? Are you more Finnish or more English? And I'd be like, I, I don't know. Mm. So what sociology does it, it, is it allows us to question that whole notion of that you have to have a source of belonging. So I think that helped me hugely because I can now go, well, I, I, I can question that. I can sort of say, well, that's not actually how I view it. So another thing is age is just allows you to not care. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm in my 50s now and I'm noticing I'm caring a lot less about a lot of stuff. Um, so I think age and experience mm. and, you know, probably growing confidence. But also for me, I mean, a, a, a huge part of that is, also realizing you know how privileged I am like I have a really privileged position in the world so my my kind of uh problems with the sense of belonging they were really first world problems in that sense so I'm I'm white I'm middle class I'm well educated 
Um, I speak fluent English, I speak fluent Finnish, I speak fluent Swedish. Um, and no one has actually properly marginalized me, stigmatized me. Um, so, it, and and that's something as well that, because those are the things that we as sociologists are, are really concerned with. So that's also helped me to think, well, actually, I, I do have a really strong claim to belonging. So politically, my claims to belonging haven't been denied. I've got citizenship. Mm. You know, I've not had to flee wars or persecution or or things like that. Yeah. So I think it's all all of that put together means that I I kind of now for me, it it's yeah, I I don't have a problem now with my sense of belonging. I'm I'm curious as I was listening to you, I, I the word intersectionality came up for me. Is that a word that sociologists use? I've heard yes. you say culture. Okay, so that would be yeah. a word that would be yeah. in your discipline. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I, I have a colleague who wrote a paper. She she does work with English language learners. Um, female, particularly in STEM, in the STEM field in higher ed, and she started out um, just in uh, researching their experiences in these fields and sort of understanding. And what emerged for her was the relationship between intersectionality and their sense of belonging. Right in that yeah. case, it was being female, being Latinx in a predominantly white university in a STEM field. Right, so it's like the yeah. the confluence. So I just wasn't sure. Yeah. I, I know the term intersectionality, but I wasn't sure if it was also associated with sociology. So, yeah, which reminds me of a guest that we had on recently who is, um, she was a, a classmate of mine in college. She and her husband are white. They've adopted two African American daughters, and she's, uh, they're teenagers. And so she's describing the things that you're describing. The context is different, but the ideas are very similar. And my friend obviously is older than her daughter. So she has the benefit of age and a different perspective. She's also trying to understand the lived experiences of her daughters, which are vastly different than her own. And they're being raised in predominantly white areas with, you know, good schools on paper. Uh, but they're, it's a hard environment for her, for her daughters to figure out who they are and, and what is the struggle. And as you're speaking, I'm just remembering this conversation. Her name is Liz with Liz and it's contextualizing it for me in a very different way. And I love that you just said age because that's a piece of it, right? Because as yeah. these girls are trying to identify, you know, with whom they associate the most and because they're asked the same questions that you just, you know, like, well, who, who are those your parents and how does this work? And one of her daughters, uh, her dad typically brings her to school and she didn't ever want her friends to meet her mom because she wanted her friends to think that her mom was black. And yeah. that she wasn't adopted, right? So there's all yeah. this um, sort of confluence of factors that that the girls are trying to manage while also being teenagers and managing just the typical growth and development associated with that time. So it just seems so complex. And I really appreciate that you just shared your story because I think it gives us so much context around your journey, around sociology, around that discipline. Um, and sometimes just a story helps to to connect all those dots. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I say to my students as well when I well, like comment on my writing is, you know, because usually we'd say to students, you know, think of what your sociological argument is. But I just say, what's the story here? Mm. What is it that you want to tell? Mm. Yeah. So I'm trying. I mean, we 
our audience knows we come up with interview questions and I'm, I'm looking at the interview questions and I'm like, well, we've already, we've, we've like gotten into that already. So, so I'm curious because we haven't talked too much about this. So given all the complexities that you've described and so beautifully, and I agree with Brianne, we love stories, right? Stories mm-hmm. are just the lived experiences just sort of are the best way to, to hear about these things. So I just appreciate all your stories. When you think about, you know, if you were in front of a group, whether it's educators, uh, caregivers and parents, whomever, and you were helping them to sort of navigate the waters that you describe with young people or other people, like what kinds of things are you recommending? Like in terms of, you know, if we got down to brass tacks, like are there practices or strategies that you're, you would offer to folks given your expertise and experience with, with this construct? Um, that's a really good question and and often because at least the type of sociologist I am I tend not to come with with tips and and hints on how to do things Um, (laughs) but I I think one of them is because and I think it's it's it it would be sort of a more general guidance not just to someone who's struggling with belonging but just Mm -hmm. general guidance about or you know a, a sort of a wish that there was a sense of openness and curiosity because mm. what i think um what we what we almost subconsciously do quite a lot is like i mentioned Bourdieu's work about we start decoding someone immediately the minute they open their mouth or the minute we see what they're wearing um and that is just something we do as human beings because we are social beings, we belong to groups. And and for some reason, it is important for us to somehow decode who belongs to our group and who doesn't. And maybe it is about that trust thing, oh, you know, yeah. that, that we we tend to think that maybe we can trust someone who's who's in the, as psychologists would think, or social psychologists talk about in groups and out groups. Um so I think it's it is that kind of openness and curiosity um, about people who might do things a different way. Um, but then also sort of because because this is something like I've just on a very personal level, I, I recently, well, not a couple of years back, I was trying to give advice to my niece who'd moved to another country to study. And um, basically the, the advice was about patience and belonging takes time. Mm-hmm. And that, that, for example, moving to a different country, you can anticipate in advance that you're not going to belong, but the actual experience of it will still shock you because it's so visceral and I think it, and that speaks to the, just the importance of feeling at home in the world. And and when you're in a different country, there's maybe very little that offers you that feeling of being anchored or feeling safe on whatever level, because you don't know people, you don't know the culture, you don't know how things work, you maybe don't know the language, you don't, so you, you are unmoored. Um, mm. And in that situation, it really does just take time. And it's a really painful process. Actually, not belonging is is very painful. 
And that's actually something that I've also found in in my own research is that if you if you in an interview just off the cuff ask someone to talk about their sense of belonging, they usually they're stumped. They just go silent. They're like, well, I just belong. Mm -hmm. So I think belonging is, again, when it when we belong, we don't think about it because we don't have to think about it because we are at ease. So we just go about our daily lives without really thinking about why. Whereas when we don't belong, that's when something's jarring. And yeah. that's, that, that, that then creates this problem. And that's the problem that we notice. And we notice that, that our routines have been disrupted or we notice that things are different from how we are used to doing them or seeing them or, or, or so on. So I found that people have a, have a lot, it's a lot easier for people to talk about not belonging. You know, if you ask people to yeah. talk about their not belonging experiences, you get tons. That's been but our experience actually, yeah. on the yeah. podcast too. <laughs> yeah. When we, when yeah. Sometimes when we ask the definition of belonging, or most of the time people will say, well, I have to start with a time where I didn't feel like I yeah. belong. Yeah. yeah. There will yeah. either be a long pause and they'll, and they have the questions in advance, right? But they'll think of like, Oh, it took me a really long time to think about what that was. You know, it's like a really, they really to think about what it is to belong yeah. or they would say, well, I can very easily tell you about a time when I didn't belong. So there was yeah. a lot of thought that had to go into what is belonging and the not belonging was, was quick and detailed and often um, hard and painful yeah. as you described. I was listening to a podcast the other day and I heard David Brooks from the New York Times talk about this idea of stacking, which I'd never heard of, but it, I think it alludes to something that you were saying before, Vanessa, about so the way he described it is if you know that somebody, for example, is from the UK, then maybe also they do this, 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 and this. Like you learn one thing about a person and you start to stack assumptions based on your limited knowledge of the person. And I think as a sociologist and your your suggestion of approaching a situation or a person with openness and curiosity, it's like anti-stacking. <laughs> if you know... One, if you know that the person's from the UK, okay, well, where are they from? You know, like, let's ask some more thoughtful and kind questions to understand what their experience was. And it just, those two things came to mind to me when you were, when you were talking, right? Because your experience is very different. All these mm -hmm. languages, like Harry said, you know, foot in, in several different camps. And you've used the word unmoored a couple of times, which I really yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Because um, we have sometimes kind of a nautical analogy going Carrie and I do a little bit sometimes so that that made sense to us as well so I appreciate this idea of openness curiosity and that being kind of the posture with yeah you know, with which you stand yeah yeah and it does and it does sort of um it does also speak to so going back to sort of Bourdieu and his notion of habitus because the another thing where I like I, I I do like it, although there's lots of critiques of Bourdieu's work as well. But uh, what I like about it is that it, it it sort of speaks to the fact that that this um, the importance of the familiarity that we don't take that we don't notice, um, and so belonging. Like um, to paraphrase, there's there's a famous American famous American ethnomethodologist uh, Harold Garfinkel who said that there are that the th that there are these things that we see but don't notice but that are still very important so belonging is something that we can see but not notice mm -hmm. so when we are experiencing belonging we don't notice it because it's familiar because it's everything 
although our sort of habitus is socially learned, so the way we speak, the way we think and so on, those are socially learned, but they feel like second nature to us or they feel quote unquote natural. Um, and it and that that sort of when we're when we're in a state of belonging, it feels as though things are just the way they should be, and therefore we don't have to think about them. Um, and it's sort of when we don't belong, we're like fish out of water, and that's when we start to really notice our surroundings and we start to pay attention to how we might do things or how we like things to be done or how we like interactions to to go. Um, I was just comparing notes with a colleague on a bus where on the on the bus on the way home yesterday about sort of different ways in which Finnish people and English people interact and and there's a there's a difference there and so my English partner feels like Finnish people don't really interact with him the way he would <laughs> like them to so he'll he'll crack a joke and they just look at him deadpan and go yep <laughs> whereas oh, with english people being english they love that they, they love this notion that they're really good at banter so they are really good at the kind of the jokey jokey mm -hmm. way of interacting with just anyone on the street whereas in finland you don't you don't really interact with people on the street that you don't know yeah um so there are these little little things that that are easy to notice if if you're not from a particular culture yeah, that's so that's so true. I have a a wonderful. He's really become a friend. He's a doctoral student, um, but he's also a friend. He was visiting his father in Italy, and he said to me that he's really immer he's taking he's learning Italian, really immersing himself in the culture. And similar, he similarly Vanessa, he said when he went to the gym, he hadn't realized how much Italian uh, people express themselves with their whole bodies like it's not right like the the care and the concern and the joy all of it he's like I could just sit and watch right yeah. so when you're in that and, and you're the Italian person you probably don't right notice it um yeah. in the way that someone who's not from that town in Italy would notice it so I think um and I think it's beautiful and at the same time I'm sitting here thinking this is all the also the challenge of exclusion and dominant cultures where we as I mean I'm a I identify as a gay white female and my observable whiteness brings lots of privilege and so I really I have adopted a practice where I am checking myself and reflecting and and sort of trying to do more noticing of things that would would be there ordinarily for me as a white person right and I think that's yeah that's the tricky and hard part of navigating some of this work too is that at the same time you're excluding people who like Brianne's friend who has two black daughters well, you know daughters of color they see it very clearly all the time right that they are not in the mm. dominant culture so it's it's mm. a different experience mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think at the interpersonal level, because I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm a more of a sort of micro level sociologist that I am interested in my own research and looking at that micro level of interaction, for example. So at that level of interaction, I think that then goes back to what we were talking about—the kind of the openness and curiosity—and mm -hmm. and I like that notion of unstacking, so not assuming. Yeah. Um, but again, if if you belong to a majority culture and you can go about your life without being questioned about who you are what you do how you speak how you look 
you don't notice that the, so that's often also the case like with, when researching whiteness or um is is that white people don't notice their whiteness or you know the majority of people in the majority culture don't recognize that their culture is culture so again it's that notion that only only ethnic minority people have a culture mm. which of course isn't isn't right or isn't correct um yeah. so it is sort of becoming aware of of exactly those things that we take for granted as this is culture this is whiteness and then sort of doing that work of 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 making the familiar strange so that's another thing from Barfinkel mm -hmm. is making the familiar strange and that's what he taught his students at the interactional level is to was to go out he, he called them breaching experiments so he told his students to go out into the world and do these breaching experiments and uh, so like go into a bakery and just start eating stuff from the shelves or, you know, so do things that you'd normally wouldn't do as yeah. a breaching the social norms of interaction in a particular space. Mm -hmm. um, and then that sort of brings the rule to the forefront. It makes people notice that, ah, oh, there actually is a rule here that most people follow, but aren't aware of because it is so second nature to them. Oh, that's cool. And again, that's what sort of sociology, social sciences are really good at is is a lot, is giving us that mindset and giving us the tools to 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 do that as much as possible. And then to sort of maybe turn that. And that's I think why I think like as a as an academic, that's maybe the biggest influence I'll ever have is not necessarily through my published work, but through teaching. Yeah. Um For sure. yeah. So I know we're running short on time. I would love to ask you one more question if I can. I can't help but think about um, Maya Angelou. I'm going to I'm gonna paraphrase because I always botch the quote, but she talks about belonging everywhere and nowhere, belonging to self. And I can't, I would love to sort of wrap up this conversation. I know you, you were mentioning that it's an interaction, right? It's an individual and society or social part. I wonder what your what your thoughts are though of, if you're able to do some work around noticing and those breaching sort of experiments and really almost solidifying a sense of belonging for yourself, right? If for some part of it, to what extent do you think that can be a protective factor? So you mentioned, you know, going to a new culture to study or taking a job in a place that's, if I left academia and went into the finance, I would have lots of culture shocks <laughs> around things. I mean, you can see I have a sweatshirt on today. Um, <laughs> so like, to what extent do you think, you know, feeling some belonging within is a protective factor for these other experiences? I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I'm just curious. Yeah, I think that sort of goes to the, and this is where we've noticed that I'm drawing disciplinary boundaries here. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that, that is a, so as a as a sociologist, I'm sort of noticing as a sociologist, I'm very wary of making comment on like people's because mm. that's kind of almost what so psychologists do is sort of making comment of oh oh what allows people to feel secure in the world mm. because again as a sociologist, I would say you could have the greatest self confidence in the world, um, and and yet if you're politically denied belonging, there's there's no way of getting around that. Um, and there are sort of mechanisms through which that can be done by denying access to resources, um, denying citizenship yeah. um, and so on. Um, and we have sort of many, many 
many accounts from like the US and the UK, which which have pretty horrendous migration yeah. policies at the moment, and and you know asylum seeking is being made increasingly difficult. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's even. I mean. I think, unfortunately, the U.S. has several even domestic policies that we could point to that create that exclusion yeah. that makes it, if not completely, nearly impossible to to thrive. Right. Yeah, um, I think you're right. So, yeah. So I appreciate that. You're 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 absolutely right to say that. So, Brian, any other I feel like this is such a gift, Vanessa, to have you yeah. in front of us in real time. So, Brian, anything else that you want to? No, just to offer you, Vanessa, an opportunity to share anything that we haven't touched on that you were hoping we would get to. No, I think we have covered <laughs> we have covered <laughs> what, what I have to say about belonging. <laughs> well, that's not true. You've written a lot, but we appreciate this hour lot. of your time. I've also forgotten a lot of what I, what yeah, I wrote because that even, book is from 10 years ago now. Yeah, so. <laughs> but we didn't even touch on your like nostalgia work, on, aging, work on aging. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm really, maybe someday we'll have you back on. I would love to talk more about I'd love this to sort come of back here. notion yeah. of, I, I think you're right. I wrote age equals gift. And mm -hmm. so I think I would love to unpack that a little bit yeah. more with you. So, um, well, gosh, Vanessa, honestly, like from the bottom of my heart, this has been just such a gift and a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And I just love, I, I appreciate learning as someone who is trained economist and sort of in, in those methods and education. I love the chance to talk to a sociologist, right. And really mm -hmm. learn more about your, the boundaries and perspectives of your discipline has been really fun. So thank you yeah. for this well, great thank conversation. You. I've really enjoyed this, as, as you've noticed, a lot talking about belonging. So, yeah, but no, this is fantastic. And I enjoy did, your podcast series as well. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. look, we wish you and your partner and family a happy holiday, whatever that looks like for you. And it's just been such a pleasure. So uh, thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Tell Me This and um, take care everybody. So sincere under the glaciers of your last year. Some